Hello everyone, welcome to Tennis with an Accent, produced in collaboration with Red Circle. Uh, this is Saqib, your host. Uh, once again, uh, we are in between, uh, you know, we are in a major. Uh, uh, by the time this podcast is released, men's quarterfinals and women's quarterfinals, at least the set of quarterfinals will be in the books. And today, uh, we have our very own uh, Nick Nemeroff, who's been a contributor Tennis with an Accent, joining to discuss how this week and how this second major of the year is going to play out, especially on the ATP side. Matt Semek will be joining to discuss the WTA side a little later in the show. But uh, here is Nick. Uh, welcome, Nick, to the show once again. Thanks for having me, Saka. Really excited to be back on. Yeah, I know. It's been a while. Last time I think we spoke was the indoor season, and we both had quite a few you know, things to say about Del Potro. So uh, let's start about the action that we've seen uh, uh, throughout these championships on the men's side. A lot of aggressive play has worked. Uh, and not even, I'm not talking about Tsitsipas and Federer, I can get to them, but even the guys like Mahu and uh, Erbe, they had quite a say. And it uh, looks like you can play serve and volley, you can chip and charge, you can pick your moments and come to the net. And you've been a big advocate of this. Uh, so how impressed are you that these uh, these tactics are in full flight, uh, at least on the on the slowest surface at a major? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm really happy to see players attempting to move forward, attempting to go to the net. Uh, it's really a bit of a lost art, especially on clay. It's tough to convince players to move forward on clay, despite the fact that, in theory, it does give players more time uh, to move to the net if they do do it properly with the proper footwork uh, and the proper shots. But... You don't see it that often. So to see players serving and volleying, deciding to move forward uh, more often is definitely encouraging. I've always advocated for lower-ranked players to move to the net against higher-ranked players. Usually the higher-ranked players are superior from the baseline, superior movement, superior ground strokes. So to help nullify that advantage, to put more pressure on the higher-ranked opponents, I think it's beneficial for lower-ranked players to get to the net, it's easier to end points at the net. Your angle on the court is much greater. The range of shots you can hit is much greater. Uh, it's easier to put balls away. A simple analogy is if you ask a basketball player, what would they rather have, a three-point shot or a layup? They'd rather have a layup because it's much closer. It's easier for them to finish the basket. So when Federer was playing team a few weeks ago, it was great to see Federer serving and volleying so much, uh, using that play against a player who's so strong from the baseline on clay uh, is really great. Uh, and I think it would be beneficial for someone, and we'll talk about this more as the prog- as the podcast progresses, but it's someone like Zverev against Djokovic, even though Zverev is a great baseliner, he's not Novak Djokovic. And to expect him to beat Novak Djokovic in a best-of-five set match, he needs to have uh, the willingness to move to the net on a consistent basis. Otherwise, he's going to have very little chance of getting through that match, despite how talented he is from the baseline. He's playing someone who has 15 more grand slams than him for a reason. No, I think uh, very well said. Uh, we'll get to that matchup, uh, or at least Zverev and, and Djokovic and in maybe separate conversations because uh, the match very well could be released, uh, could be uh, done by the time the podcast is released, or at least half the listeners will tune in, they'll know the result. So you were saying something about 
uh, strategy about lower rank players. Kind of interesting, but at the same time, uh, are you seeing this as just like their only chance? Because uh, uh, my counter argument here would be uh, for to achieve that, you need to be a Misha Zverev, someone who's making a living. But then Misha Zverev is not a great baseliner, so all the time he's going to the net and he's probably, you know, clay's not his best surface. So what kind of a player should be doing that? Someone who's somewhat comfortable walling or someone who just said, okay, I'm going, uh, this is a prayer. Because, you know, you, you cannot be, because uh, this day and age in the in the men's game, it's a very heavily, uh, you know, a baseline-oriented game for, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would say majority. Clear majority is baseliners. That's why a Stefano Tsitsipas who can be pretty good from the baseline, but can come to the net to use drop shots, use slice. So th- th- let me throw throw this back to you. When you're saying a lower-ranked player, I mean, is this a strategy or you think that's more like a, they're coming on a, for a prayer because from the baseline, they really don't have a chance? Great question. I'll give you a perfect example. When I was watching Nadal's first two matches of the tournament, uh, one of them was against Yannick Madden. And throughout the entire match, it was Nadal just dominating him from the baseline. And I thought to myself, well, you know, why doesn't this guy move forward more often? He, it's clear that he has no chance from the baseline. There's just simply no chance unless Nadal plays the worst match of his life, which obviously doesn't happen. Uh, he's got no shot. Um, so even if, a certain player, lower-ranked players, when you see these guys playing, you know, Nadal and Djokovic and Federer early in early rounds of slams, even if they're not super comfortable at the net, they have to at least try moving forward because they're playing some of the greatest baseliners ever. Um, and if it's not something that they're comfortable with now, then that needs to be a wake-up call. They need to get more comfortable, otherwise they're going to have they're going to have trouble getting to the top of the game. They're going to have trouble moving through the ranks. Because even if they're not using it as a every match strategy, they need to have it within their repertoire. Because there are times within every match that players need to move forward and you'll constantly see players not moving forward when they should be. And you'll constantly see players not using proper footwork. To give you the perfect example of that, you'll see a lot of players try to move toward the net hitting open stance, meaning that, to put into simple terms, they're stepping toward the side of the court with their last step before they hit the ball. When they do that, their body weight is going toward the side of the court. Then they move toward the net. Well, if they're originally going to the side of court and they're trying to move forward, they're moving in the wrong direction. Whereas you see someone like Federer, Federer will play at a more neutral stance, which essentially means you're stepping forward. Uh, if you're if you're Federer and you're hitting a forward, you, forehand, you'd be stepping toward the net with your last left foot last and this gets you much closer to the net it gets you a bunch of steps ahead ahead of where the person would be if they're hitting open stance so part of it for some of these players has to be that you know they're just not comfortable at the net but if that's the case they need to become more comfortable otherwise they're not going to win um you know the most the best players are the ones that give themselves the most options to win points and if you're someone in 2019 and you can get to the net. You're giving yourself you're giving yourself an option that a lot of a, pl- a lot of players don't have. Hmm. I think it's uh, it raises a very interesting, but I think a common point that a lot of coaches, I think, uh, and people who are close to, uh, you know, tennis and uh, 
even in, in media capacity or someone who's a former player, people from the previous generation wish uh, players just don't come to the net. You know, they should come to the net on their own terms, not when they're drawn by an opponent. But then that's a bigger conversation in terms of maybe, you know, at, at coaching academies where world-class players are produced, they should put heavy emphasis on uh, volleying technique because uh, to, to, to just, you know, support your point, it, it, there's clear evidence at this year because we haven't heard if the balls are lighter or something's changing. You know, the weather has been typical Paris. It's been rainy, damp, and then, you know, there have been a couple of scorchers. But people, uh, players, sorry, uh, who play aggressive brand of tennis have been rewarded and they have had some good results. And even a guy like Benoit Paire, who's a baseliner, but he's not afraid to come to the net. And uh, a lot of French players do that. So a- anyone else uh, that stood out in this fortnight, which hasn't concluded yet, uh, I-, I was big on Jan Leonard's trophy, came in short against Novak Djokovic. Not sure if you've seen any of his matches or if you want to talk about any of the players on the men's side. Uh, that executed this game plan before we get to Sitsipas and Federer? Well, one last comment on uh, moving toward the net. Um, so there are, so generally speaking, you know, you're talking about, you know, you want to see players come in on their own, on their own. And there's generally three times that a player should go to the net. Number one, most obviously is serve a volley. So that's obviously a player creating their own, their own initiative or taking the initiative. So that's number one. Um, number two would be if your opponent is in trouble and this is the time where you don't see players moving forward in trouble in trouble essentially means your opponents on the stretch. They're in a very defensive position. You in most circumstances would expect a shorter ball. And this is the time in modern tennis, quote unquote, you would see a lot of players not moving forward. You see players waiting for that slow slice, letting it drop, and then trying another baseline shot, and then doing that over and over and over as opposed to just going to the net. Um, so serve and volley, getting your opponent in trouble, and then the short ball. So that, you know, if your opponent hits a short ball, you should be proactive in moving forward and getting to the net. So if players can just understand that those are the three times you, can, you go to the net and maximize those opportunities, you're giving yourself a way better chance of winning points and you'll notice, like yesterday, Sitsipas won like about 70% of the points when he went to the net. And he was winning, I believe it was, 46% of the points that he played at the baseline. So the numbers say he was much more successful when he got to the net. And you'll see this a lot with a lot of players. Uh, and people will argue, oh, well, the numbers are skewed because they go to the baseline way more. Well, that's definitely, that's definitely part of it. But... Uh, if the players were deciding to go to the net more, I definitely think they would see a, a significant advantage of of winning of going to the net, and they'd be winning a significantly uh, higher percentage of the points because they have that close angle on top of the net. Um, and as far as uh, other players who impressed me, I gotta say Hatchinov. Uh, I mean, I did not see him beating Del Potro today. Uh, you know, I know Del Potro was a little bit you know, injured, but it's impressive that Hachinov was able to uh, make his first uh, quarterfinal here and first quarterfinal, I believe at a slam. Uh, he was only three and five on the year coming in to the French open. He was only three and five on clay. So it's not like he was uh, one to watch out for before the tournament. Whereas I had expected someone like Borna George 
to maybe make a, a deeper run. So, uh, yeah, impressive from Hachinov. It'll be curious to see what he does against team. They've only played once, and Hachinov has has a 1-0 record against him. So uh, I'm looking forward to that match. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. And even uh, we talk about Karan Hachinov, he's going to be the first Russian I was reading on Twitter uh, since 2012, I think, or maybe maybe more than 10 years to crack the top 10. And uh, and the only way that's going to not happen if Stan Wawrinka wins the title. So, wow. so yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, uh, there was a time like not too long ago when, you know, Yuzhny, uh, Safin, Davidenko, you know, Russians were there in top 10 and top 20 for the longest of time. And yeah, it's kind of cyclical, you know, it's, uh, it's what goes around. And now uh, Rublev is another guy who's not in the conversation, but yeah. So Karen Hachinov, a big week, and it's not over yet. Uh, he definitely can stay with team on clay. Um, his racket change and a lot of things were talked about, but he did gain some momentum coming into Roland Garros. I think he won a couple of matches and lost a close one in Madrid. And uh, same thing's happening with Sasha Zverev. Now he's won, what, eight matches. Me and Matt spoke about it uh, last week. And I was saying, uh, uh, you know, when a player is like, like Zverev, like, who's been touted to do so well, I'm not technical, so I'm not going to say, you know, what he should be doing. His second serve is predictable and maybe he's on the court. Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff is clear, but he just wants so bad. And I think this is the first match when he plays Djokovic where he will not be favored to win, even though today against Fonini, he did a great job. I think he can play some free tennis because Novak is clearly the favorite. Uh, you know, in my mind, I think he's he's played the best tennis so far in this tournament. So I think uh, Zverev and uh, Djokovic would be a great match. Uh, but I still think, uh, not as a counter-argument, I, I don't think Zverev is as great or world, as world-class or as elite as Djokovic from the baseline, but he's pretty good. He can hang with Djokovic, but you're right. I think his first serve has to get him some points, and then he has to put away easy balls, has to play some first-strike tennis. But I think he can, uh, in my mind, he can hang with Djokovic. I'm not saying he can beat Djokovic uh, with that style, because he did that at London. So... What what are some of the keys, in, in your opinion, uh, or takeaways from what happened in London if you want to see that kind of performance of a close match from the German against uh, the world number one in on clay? Well, I think Zverev uh, said it best himself when he was interviewed today on Tennis Channel. Brad Haber asked him what he needed to do to beat Novak, and he he all he said was, I need to be uh, really aggressive. And I think that's what allowed him to beat Novak at the end of last year. He was really proactive from the baseline. He was really aggressive from the baseline. He took a lot of opportunities to move forward. He attacked short balls really well, and he volleyed really well. He's pretty much going to have to have an outstanding uh, offensive performance. Um, now, he'll probably have some time at the beginning of the match to feel Novak out. Uh, look, if Zverev notices at the beginning of the match that Djokovic isn't on his baseline game, then if I'm Zverev, I'd, I would say, okay, well, maybe I don't need to be as hyper-aggressive than I imagined. Um, but if Novak is on his game, like he was today against Struff, Zverev's going to have to be super aggressive. He's going to have to be super proactive going to the net. Today against Fonini, Zverev won 28 of 46 points at the net. So that's 60% of the points won. Um, so that's a solid percentage. Um, so if he can replicate that against Djokovic and take his chances moving forward, I, uh, I think that will give him the best option to win. But I think you're totally right. I think it's a great point you made about him not feeling any pressure. 
Uh, Novak will be the heavy favorite. Uh, No one expects Zverev to win. Uh, All the pressure is on Novak, really. So maybe that'll loosen him up. And uh, hopefully that'll uh, produce a great match. Do you think uh, Zverev has any shot here? I mean, shot... uh... Yeah, I mean, you, you're going to go out and, you know, you're going to make a bold statement. I think there's a shot. Uh, I think, uh, he, in my opinion, he can play, you know, with house money because he was really uh, not in a good space. You know, at least we don't know these guys, but, you know, when they start making these moves, okay, go to Geneva, play the week before a slam. So I think he was clearly short on confidence, probably putting in a lot of hard work. You know, he has Andy Murray's former trainer, Jazz Green. The guy really wants, you know, to be that next guy who takes the mantle from, you know, the big three. Does he have a chance? Of course. I think you you want to believe he has a chance, but at the same time, uh, you know, he still has a lot of highs and lows. And in, against Djokovic, you have to be total lockdown mode or you have to believe what you're doing. So I think he definitely takes a set, maybe two sets, but I still think Novak comes out uh, as a winner. And there's, there's a lot of rain. It's going to be damp and heavy conditions. I think the high on Wednesday is 59. And who knows how much tennis we'll get that day. Well, that's a great that's a great thing to know. Uh, the one other thing I would say is, and I think you've alluded to it, the double faults. I mean, today he had a ton of double faults. He had 12 today, I think. Um, and then against Lyovich and Milman, he had uh, 14 against each of them. And what I noticed today on his serve from a pure technical perspective was a lot of deceleration, meaning that usually going through the contact point, you should be accelerating your racket. And he was slowing down, which on a second serve is uh, usually a sign of nerves. I don't know if he's having some sort of technical glitch. I'd have to watch it more in slow motion or if he's just nervous. But the fact that he's had so many double falls in this tournament is not a good sign. Uh, and against Djokovic, obviously the greatest returner ever, you need to be super aggressive and super confident on your server. He's just going to eat you up. Yeah. So, no, no, it's, it's really, I don't want to, I know it's very tempting, Uh as well as Djokovic, that's like a marquee matchup right there. But uh, like the whole idea for the podcast is let's uh, go into prediction mode. Uh, so I know you were tweeting uh, some results. So uh, are you still going with a Rafa Nole final? That's how it is? Or uh, do you think there's someone who can crash this party? I mean, if you look for, uh, for he- look far ahead into the weekend for concluding business for this uh, major. Yeah, so I believe that Djokovic will make the final. If someone were to beat him, I think it would be team. I would definitely still pick Novak. And the bottom half, I'll definitely pick Rafa. But I could see Wawrinka giving him some trouble uh, if he's on his game. Um, Obviously, when they met in the French Open final two years ago, it was one-way traffic the whole way. But if... Any, anyone is going to stop that final, it's going to be Wawrinka or team. I don't think Nishikori, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that. Nishikori is not going to, ha- not going to provide much resistance. Um, and hypothetically, if Hachinov were to be team and it's Hachinov Djokovic, I don't think we're going to see a repeat of what we saw at the end of last year. I think it's interesting what you said. I, I beg to differ a uh, little bit because I think uh, tennis to me, in, in a very elemental way, it's all about matchups. Uh, if Nick can beat Sakib, Sakib can beat Matt, but Matt cannot beat Nick. You know, it's one of those things. So I think it, this principle applies. You know, there's a lot of problem solving, you know, a lot of data, a lot of analysis. They have coaching teams, but this, pro- this pa- these patterns exist. And uh, going back to the 2017 f- 
final. I think Stan Wawrinka came in playing lights out tennis. A lot of people believe Stan has lost a major final, and I was one of them. I thought he's going to take it to Rafa, and it's going to be one of the all-time classic finals. And he didn't play a bad final. I think it was just Nadal was too much on that day for him. And uh, if you look at his two or three wins against Nadal, they have come during the period when Nadal was, you know, not playing his best tennis. So I think a Tsitsipas, uh, who, in my opinion, can take the high backhand because he's slightly taller, he has more reach, he can take, you know, the, the one-hand backhand, you know, that causes, uh, that that's caused so much pain by Nadal to all the players who have one-hand backhand. I think Tsitsipas is a better matchup, I think, even on clay. May not beat Nadal in best of five sets, so I'm not too sold on Wawrinka. He beat Nadal in Rome in 2015 when Nadal wasn't really playing good, and then I think he has a couple of wins outside of clay. Uh, so what do you make of this hypothetical Federer-Nadal match if it does happen? You think uh, you were the one of the few guys who were saying uh, Federer should come to the net. So Murta Tunga said to me in one of our conversations that Federer all week has been playing in using patterns that would prepare him for Rafa. Again, I don't watch tennis at the high level that Murta does, but uh, I'll try to watch tomorrow's match and see what Murta is talking about. So walk us through, if it is uh, Federal semi-final, what can Roger Federer do to disrupt Nadal? And does he have a chance in your, uh, in your view to even take a set? Well, I think while well, I was thinking about this before the podcast, I think I'm maybe undervaluing or not giving Federer enough credit um, just because I'm automatically just thinking, okay, I haven't seen enough from Federer in his first time back on clay this year to, to, to lead me to believe that he's going to be able to beat Wawrinka in a best of five. I know he really pushed team in Madrid. Um, but for me, it feels like in a best of five match against Wawrinka, uh, I think Wawrinka is going to have the upper hand. I think Wawrinka is going to win. I think he just, I think he's going to be able to attack the Federer backhand. I think he's going to be able to uh, really set up his shots and put Federer on the defensive. But if Federer can come away with the victory, and he plays Nadal. I think what Murd is saying is, is spot on that, you know, he's setting himself up the proper way tactically to beat Nadal and Clay. I mean, he had, you know, in the past, he's obviously not beaten Nadal at the French Open. And, you know, there were a few four set matches in there. Then, of course, the 08 final where he got destroyed. Uh, but I think Federer gives himself the best chance if he's, you know, one, taking his backhand early like he did in, in Australia in 2017. In that final, which was obviously uh, one of his best matches ever, and uh, if he's going to the net, if he's serving and volleying, especially if Nadal establishes a defensive return position, if you're Federer, you want to limit the length of the rallies against Nadal. You know, the longer the rally goes, the less likely uh, it is that Federer is going to win the point. So anything Federer can do to make the match not feel like a clay court match is going to be really helpful, and the conditions, I'm sure, will be super important if it's a warmer day. Um, if it, I mean, if it's a warmer day, Nadal's ball is going to move faster, but Federer's also Federer's shots are also going to go through the court faster. But if it's a slower day, it's going to be tougher for Federer to attack and move through the court. Obviously, Federer has been supremely uh, gifted on faster courts throughout his career. Right. I mean, I don't so disagree. In that match, I would say I would pick Nadal, and I'd say maybe Federer wins one set. 
Yeah, I think and I'll, I'll agree. I, I don't see this version of Federer, you know, in his peak days, he couldn't beat Nadal. I think 2011 was a pretty good opportunity, but Nadal is Nadal on clay and, you know, enough can't be said. But I do think uh, Federer poses a bigger threat or bigger challenge to, to Nadal than Wawrinka, in my in my opinion. And, you know, I could be dead wrong how this is played. But I, I also think uh, Nadal, sorry, Wawrinka and Tsitsipas going the distance in a five-hour five-set. It's not like a three-hour, 20-minute five-setter. Five-hour five-set, I think Federer, uh, I see him coming as a 50-50 in tomorrow's quarterfinal. Uh, even before the tournament started, I, you know, I was one of the few ones who thought Federer may just you know, not make the second week. And I'm biting my tongue here, but uh, you know, he's, he's done this quite a lot. The draw was also not that tricky, I think, for all uh, the the big three. Nadal did had Goffin, but after that, you know, I think Nadal uh, against Nishikori, it's, I think, yeah, I think we are heading towards uh, Nadal uh, Djokovic, and I, I would still keep team in the mix, because I think he he's not too far behind. Absolutely. So, um, I know we were talking before, we were prepping about the show, that, you know, we will bring about Tsitsipas, and we all have made some time uh, predictions or projections, and you are quite knowledgeable. So even though you said you are not afraid to be wrong, so let, let's let's dwell a little bit on Sitsipas uh, uh, in your assessment that uh, you know he's someone who grew up on clay. He's of course said it now, but uh, what part of uh, his success on clay has surprised you? Because he's two seasons in a row uh, played lights out tennis on clay. Sure. So I originally had said that I thought he would be inconsistent on clay. Throughout his career, um, obviously his career is still young, but at the current moment, it looks like I have been proven very wrong. But what my thought was initially was that he is a very aggressive player, like what we saw in Australia, super aggressive, takes the ball early on top of the baseline. Um, And I thought that the very linear flat nature of his game uh that we saw in australia um would not over his career be super translatable to clay and of course having watched him over the last couple months i think i failed to realize just how versatile his game was i mean if you think about his game he can play all of the shots from the baseline. He can flatten out the ball low over the net. He can hit the really heavy, high, deep ball like he had to do with Wawrinka yesterday in those backhand-to-backhand exchanges. And he can also hit that more intermediate ball that's not super low or super high, but it's somewhere in the middle. um, And it moves to the court pretty quickly. And that obviously makes him very potent on clay as well. I think he's going to be great on grass because he moves to the net. So, I mean, we're talking about a player who has the potential to be one of the most versatile players we've seen. And his movement on clay is really solid as well, um, which I think I underestimated. So uh, it's really it's really been great to see such a talented young player play like this and be so versatile. And I'm really impressed by what he's done over the last couple of months and the consistency as well, going deep in all of these tournaments and the physical and mental toll that I'm sure he's had to go through has been you know steep and he's handled the adversity well for someone who's only 20 he's definitely turned some heads including mine and uh really excited to see what he does in the future on all surfaces right and look you're not alone i mean i i interviewed uh, the kid two years ago 
and you know that was uh, my my claim to you know a little bit of fame and of course he's making uh, that podcast you know you know like a distant memory but even I, you know I, I didn't expect he's going to have this kind of a this kind of a tremendous rise where you know he's not slowing down i thought he had potential but i was not even putting him in the same league as shapovalov like only a year ago shapovalov pretty much manhandled him in melbourne in the first round and Tsitsipas was getting real angry. And I was just saying to myself, you know, watching the match, I said, you're not even close. You know, what's what's a big deal? Of course, these young guys have rivalries. And little did I know, like, you know, a lot of times a player has that kind of belief. And sometimes the match doesn't come on practice code. And, and then I discussed with Mert. Mert said, yeah, he plays too much on the back foot. And, you know, it's just uh, some, some technical glitches there. But he just surprised everyone. So, Nick, you're not alone. I mean, you at least put yourself out there. And some of us were just, like, discussing in DMs. And, you know, I was just talking to myself, talking out loud. Yeah, he's, he's a real deal. I mean, this guy is legit. He's going to London. And uh, he might be playing a major final very soon. I mean, and he's, you know, mm-hmm. Australian semis and uh, came in, you know, within few few points. I think, you know, he, he could have beaten Wawrinka, I think. And I, I myself doubted, you know, I was thinking Wawrinka is physically stronger, but Tsitsipas played a, a full physical match. And in the end, it looked like he wasn't as weary as I thought or like many people thought he would be. So, yeah, uh, it's pretty impressive what he's done. For sure. So let, let's uh, let's talk about, you know, uh, some of the other other players who still remain in the tournament. So you are, you are going back to the conversation. It's a Federer, sorry, Djokovic-Nadal final. And uh, how do you stack the men remaining in terms of, you know, who the favorites are? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. I mean, I would put Nishikori last. Okay. Uh, I just think his serve, I've always, I've said it on Twitter enough to, uh, enough for people to see it and uh, probably be annoyed by it at this point. But to me, it's just so, um, it's just such a crazy thing. I mean, the guy is so talented from the baseline. He's such a talented mover. Um, his backhand is unbelievable. Backhand down the line is just such a, such a good shot. But from a technical perspective, his serve is just, it's just not, it's just not strong enough. Um, and it's I think pretty he's consistent. I mean, sometimes we all, I mean, tend to not, I mean, shortchange his achievements. I mean, this guy is making Grand Slam quarterfinals and Masters, you know, semifinals and finals. I mean, he's, uh, I think for his generation, as Andrew Burden puts, you know, generation Grigor, he's the most consistent guy. He just, you know, comes in short against Djokovic, Murray and Nadal. Uh, that's, and even Federer. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, do, do you also buy the notion besides the serve? I, sorry, I interrupted your thought, but just combine that with, uh, you know, like Matt Zemek said, he's always finding himself in these, you know, in these physical five-set battles. And by the time the meaningful match comes around or the match that's going to propel him to the next level, uh, he's flat. I mean, uh, he doesn't have, you know, much of reserves. And these days, you know, most players survive a first five-setter, but he's gone through two. And now he's going to be playing uh, three days in a row when he takes on Nadal. Yeah, it's definitely true if you look at his Grand Slam losses that in a lot of Grand Slams, he loses to really strong opponents. As in the last three Grand Slams, he's lost to Djokovic every single time. uh, And Djokovic has won all three Grand Slams. But it goes to show you that he is missing that one element to his game that would allow him to at least win some of these matches because he's just so talented from the baseline. It's hard for me to believe that if he had a legitimate serve, for instance, if you gave him 
Nicholas Almagro serve. And they're similar height. If you gave him Almagro serve, Nishikori by now would have a slam because he's that good from the baseline. He's that good of a mover. His backhand is that good. His return of serve is that good. Um, and if you look over the last five or six years of his career, he hasn't changed anything about his serve. Or if he has, it's been very minor. Maybe the stance. Um, but what he's doing with the racket and there are serious technical deficiencies. Um, and he plays with a 95-inch uh, you know, head size because I remember his coach, Michael Chang, when he was trying to lock you know, horns with Pete Sampras and Michael Streak and all those big guys, he, he went for a bigger head size for Prince. So I know you coach, and this is what uh, you probably do on a daily basis. You think a bigger head size would, uh, would give Nishikori maybe the edge that's lacking, or it's all about control and you, know, you don't say, change rackets? I'm sure that discussion has happened, and we'll never know. But what's your take on that? Uh, no, I don't think it would uh, have make much of an impact. And it's what I tell people who I teach. So they'll say, well, you know, I want to use this racket as opposed to this one, and I think my game would be better with this. And what I tell them is, yeah, a different racket may help to a certain extent, but it's all about the technique. Um, look at the guys back in the day who crushed serves with wooden rackets. You know, how do they do that? Because they had flawless technique, Roscoe Tanner, for instance. Go on YouTube and watch one of his serves. The technique was just flawless. If you had Nishikori develop a service technique like a Raonic, his game would go, would escalate so much. Um, so I know maybe a bigger rack would help him add a few MPHs, um, but it's all—it's mainly about the technique and what he specifically what he's doing with the racket mechanics that is caught, um, sacrificing racket head speed for him. Hmm. All right, so that, that's kind of interesting because, uh, I don't know, uh, Australian Pat Cash, who won Wimbledon, he wasn't a big server, but I think he was the same height as Nishikori or maybe even an inch shorter, and he served and volleyed. So uh, that probably goes back to your initial point. If a player, how, how do you rate Nishikori's volley before I throw that question, I mean, uh, to you? Uh, you think he's a competent uh, volleyer or he, is this the serve that's a missing component? Because he does come to the net and finish points. I've seen that, but... Uh, I don't have the analytical ability like uh, uh, technical expertise that you possess. Sure. Well, I think most of the players nowadays are pretty strong off the forehand volley and pretty average on the backhand volley. Nisha Corey, though, uh, is pretty athletic. Um, he doesn't have, obviously, a ton of reach, but he's got great hands. If you, He had an amazing uh, half volley pickup in the fifth set against Pear today. I'm not sure if you saw that, but his hands are really strong, so... Um, if I, but if Nishikori can't serve volley because his serve just isn't good enough, um, he would get he would get he would get destroyed if he tried to serve volley. Um, so, but if he had a better serve, then yeah, you know, maybe he could serve volley. Uh, you think at this stage uh, that kind of adjustment can be made, or or you know, it is more like what you have. You just you know, let's see if your best can beat the other guy's best. And you know, I, I'm sure they're all trying to reinvent in some way. But uh, tinkering, tinkering with the serve, like Nadal was talking about, like how he's changes motion. And I know you and some of the folks were discussing that. So talk about Nishikori, and then add uh, your opinion on what you've seen on Nadal serve. Yeah, well, uh, this is a big debate among tennis coaches. Can these players change their technique at this stage of their career? Most of the, mo a lot of coaches will say, well, no, what they have at 18 is what they'll have forever. 
I don't believe that at all. I mean, look at what Chilich did with his toss uh, to allow him to win that U.S. Open in 2014. He significantly lowered the toss, which changes the entire flow and rhythm of the serve. Um, Djokovic's serve, look what his serve looked like back in the day. He had a huge hitch in the middle of the serve. His serve looks nothing like it did uh, back then. His technique has improved immensely. So it's possible. We're talking about world-class athletes, um, professional athletes who are better at handling a racket than anyone else on the entire planet. So I think these changes can be made. If I uh, can change the technique of players who are playing tennis once or twice a week, then I think the mechanics of a player like Nishikori could be changed for sure, especially the serve. This is a shot that you're controlling yourself. You get to control the toss. You get to control if I don't like the toss, I don't have to hit it. It's all under your control. So I definitely think Nishikori could change his serve. Uh, as far as Nadal's serve is concerned, um, the only thing that I noticed that was different was that at the beginning of his serve, he's starting with a more open racket face as he takes the racket back. So to give you a comparison, as for a righty, if you look at Raonic's serve, his racket starts super open which is actually beneficial for a serve because if you watch Raonic's serve, as the serve, as the racket goes over his head, his strings will actually face down over his head. And what this allows for, uh, to put it simplistically, is for a stronger throwing motion. So it allows the racket to loop around the head in a faster way. Um, I don't know if this is something that Nadal has actually, is doing intentionally. Uh, or if it's just happening, but that's one thing I've noticed on his serve. Um, I also think some of these guys could could go for more on their serve if they wanted to. Like I bet Djokovic could go for more on his serve if he wanted to, but he knows he doesn't need to, and why should he if he's doing what he's doing now and he's serving between 115 and 125? Why should he go for more? Um, why should he put that extra strain on himself? But as far as Nadal's serve, I've noticed that open racket face on the turn. Um, but if you're a recreational player and you're looking for, uh, the best service technique to, to copy, uh, sort of aside here, I would look, go on YouTube, look at Raonic, um, look at, um, Dolgopolov. Look at Safin. I think one of the best serves doesn't get talked about enough. Great serve as well, for sure. Uh, so again, uh, you talked recreation. Let's wrap this uh, conversation. A lot of these top players like Hachinov, Sitsipas, of course, you know, they've been hitting tennis ball all their lives. A lot of these guys, I realize, are hitting with an 18 by 20 pattern and that allows control. So how does that racket sit well at, uh, you know, someone who's listening to the podcast at, a, at our recreation level? What's the difference between 18 by 20 and 19 by 16 patterns? I know one is control and other less control, but what exactly is happening? Uh, if you can explain that to our listeners. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not the most educated on as far as how the, the level of string pattern open, uh, the how open or closed, how that impacts. Uh, I'll be honest. My As far as the ra rackets and strings is definitely my area of uh, least expertise. Um, and I think maybe that's partly because I'm such in the mindset that, uh, you know, you can use a 16 by 20, 18 by 20, it's all going to come down and you can use these strings, you could those strings. Yes, there's going to be differences in how your shot is made. But I think what I would, what I look to address with the people that I'm teaching to go back to that 
is that it's it's, it's all it's it's mainly about the racket mechanics. It's mainly about how you're swinging. And I think it's overlooked. I think like for instance, you'll hear commentators say, "Oh well, you know, you're in the fifth set. It's all mental." Well, is it? Uh, is Nishikori winning all these five set matches because uh, he's mentally stronger than his opponent? I'm sure in some cases that's true, but at the end of the day, the game is about hitting the ball. Um, and I think over the long run, you're going to see players with stronger technique win more matches uh, and be more solid in those stronger moments. Like Serena. Serena, you know, it, she makes so many great comebacks, and we can talk about her mental strength. But it's also easier for Serena to make huge comebacks because she has such good shots and she has such good strokes. So for me, going back to uh, the conversation of rackets and strings, you know, I tell people, you know, focus on your swing first, focus on how you're hitting the ball. And then after that, you know, then you can go to this, then you can look at the, the strings and the racket and the pattern of the strings uh, that works best for you. But if you don't have the swing to begin with, then that's where you need to start. And sorry, I can't no, give it, you more it, elaboration no. on the string patterns. No, to- totally fine. I mean, sometimes I, you know, I have a tendency to go off track, and you handle yeah. this question really well. And I'm sure uh, that's that's quite an honest answer. And uh, so anyway, I think we covered quite a lot uh, as expected. And uh, you know, we are during a Grand Slam, and you know, there's a lot of tennis watching. Like Brianna says, you know, tennis fans, you know, reset their schedule in these 14 days and because of different time zones, you know, we still have to go to work and we still have to debate on Twitter and record these podcasts. So I think, Nick, it was uh, fantastic. And uh, now since, you know, you said uh, you'll be more regular on the podcast, I'm sure we'll record many more episodes and have maybe a panel style, uh, you know, collaboration where more than few of our Tennis with an Accent contributors are there and we can all exchange, you know, predictions and, and notes and, you know, and obviously can revisit those. So once again, thanks for joining. I know you had a busy day, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back very soon. Thank you for having me. That was really fun. I hope to be back soon. So as promised, uh, like I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, Matt has joined me, and we'll be talking... uh, more of the WDA side of Roland Garros 2019, how things are shaping up and what are some of the big stories, according to us, uh, that we'll be all talking about when this tournament concludes. Hey, Matt. Hey, Saqib. So, uh, you know the plan. Uh, Nick Nemiroff was here, uh, and we talked a lot of uh, Wawrinka, Djokovic team, Nadal, Federer. So I think we covered quite a lot of who was remaining in the tournament by the time we did record the podcast, and we tried to stay uh, honest uh, as far as the relevance of the podcast stays, you know, the duration at least, it's fresh for a week's point of view. So on that note, the defending champion of the, on the ladies' draw, Samana Halep, started off, according to many, as a co-favorite with Kiki Bertens. And uh, she still stands her ground. And uh, we don't know her fate. Uh, she plays her quarterfinals tomorrow. But let's talk about a larger context. Uh, what do you see of uh, her draw and her... What, what's your forecast on Simona's chances uh, is she going to be around when the weekend comes? And what will this mean in grand context if she does defend her title successfully? Yeah, well, so you know, we're, so we're recording this podcast Tuesday night, and so when you hear this podcast on Wednesday afternoon, Wednesday evening in Europe, uh, her quarterfinal with uh, Amanda Anisimova will already be over, unless rain totally washes out Wednesday's play. Don't know what how that's going to happen, but let's assume that the results already in there. 
you know, th- that is a match that, you know, Halep is supposed to win. And obviously we, you know, we saw Anisimova take apart Arena Sabalenka, not only here at Roland Garros, but also in Australia. And that, that, that result in Australia really was uh, Anisimova's uh, announcement of her presence on tour. And it's, and it's a presence that she has been able to maintain and at this tournament improve. So uh, while one could imagine Anisimova getting hot, uh, getting on a roll in that match, you would expect Halep with her veteran experience and the fact that she smoothed out her tournament in the third and fourth rounds after choppy first and second rounds in which she lost a set apiece uh, to Aya Tomjanovic and then to uh, uh, Magda Lynette. Uh, she smoothed things out in the third and fourth rounds. She beat another teenager, Iga Sviatek, uh, from Poland in the fourth round. So you would think that she will have managed to come through this against Ana Samova. You know, would it be a disappointment if she lost, assuming that, sh- that she does? Uh, it would depend on the performance. You know, if Ana Samova was just outstanding, you know, much as uh, Joe Conta was just amazing against Sloane Stevens, it's not a bad loss for Stevens. The, other, the opponent was simply better. So, you know, if Ana Samova just gets on a roll, you know, you wouldn't really criticize Halep for losing. But if uh, it was kind of a scratchy match and Halep could never find her form, you know, that would be different. But I would I would fully expect that as you, our listeners, uh, take in this podcast, I would fully expect Halep to have moved on uh, in straight sets, no less. And it certainly is all set up for her uh, to, to, to repeat. And if she does... Well, it would be a stellar accomplishment, and it would be interesting in that Naomi Osaka won back-to-back majors, U.S. Open and then in Australia. Halep will have defended a major at Roland Garros, so you would have had two different versions, two different flavors of a prominent WTA player backing up one really big major tournament accomplishment with another. And so on a tour, and we've talked about this ourselves socket we've also talked about this with andrew burton and mert ertunga the other people that we have here at the tennis with an accent family you know one of the meta questions one of the macro level questions on the wta tour is can the top players establish uh supreme stability and consistency you know consistency not just in general but at a high level and so halep going back to back at roland garros if she can pull it off would be an example of precisely that. So that would really be the defining element of a victory if if she is able to achieve that this week in Paris. And uh, very well said. I think uh, that's something, uh, you know, when Halep hadn't won a major, uh, the quest is always for the first major. And once you get that, uh, you know, checked off, then obviously all great players need that validation of a second major. So I think that that'll be... Uh, a very intriguing watch for anyone who's a fan of Halep or even just fan of WT or fan of tennis to see how that weekend plays out for the Romanian. Uh, another another intriguing story, Matt, according to me, and I'm sure you'll agree, is Joe Conta. Uh, she really hadn't had much uh, success in clay, correct me if I'm wrong, and now this run to the semifinal kind of does come from nowhere. Uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was a challenge for her to merely get out of the first round of Roland Garros over the past few years. And, you know, Wimbledon was a place where she was expected to do well. And, of course, she's done well on hard courts, winning Miami, making the Australian Open semifinals in 2016. She lost to eventual champion Angelique Kerber. 
uh, you know, so she has put together a good body of work on grass and hard courts. You know, she made the Wimbledon semis in 2017, uh, which accompanied her rise into the top five in the world. So, you know, when she made the final in Rabat in Morocco uh, against Maria Sakari, it seemed like a one-off. It seemed like an aberration. And then she made the Rome final and, and we went, okay, so she's backing up results a little more. But still, this Roland Garros, you know, Joe Conte's never done well at this tournament. Is she really going to do this? You know, and we saw, as an example, Karolina Pliskova do really well in Rome. She beat Conte in the final, but she couldn't carry that over to Roland Garros. So here with Conte, you have a player who not only is changing her track record on clay as we speak, but she's an example of a player who has taken the work she's done in the lead-up clay events, and she's carried it into the clay major. You know, one really big uh, overarching story uh, of this French Open is how many players did well in May, did well in the lead-up events before the French Open, but then seemed to run out of steam. Christian Guerin would be an example. Matteo Berrettini would be an example. Uh, You can find other examples of players who did a lot of good work in late April and, and throughout most of May, but then they came to Paris and they seemed a little tired, you know, maybe a little stale, didn't seem to be quite as inspired, had done a lot of heavy lifting. And so Kanta is significant, Saka, because she did a lot of work. She played a lot of matches as well and did not run into a wall, did not get, you know, exhausted. She's had a lot more good tennis on offer. And our friend Tumani Cario. Uh, who you know has commented on Kanta a, a lot. He said on Twitter, and this is a great insight, that Kanta is the ultimate rhythm player. You know, she doesn't put together one isolated good result. She strings together lots of good results. I mean, once you get her into a rhythm, she's good at staying there. Uh, you know, and and that that's that really described much of her 2017 season when she just kept piling up good results on fast surfaces, now she's done the same, but on clay. So that's quite the plot twist. I'm interested, Saka, in what you have to say about Kanta. Uh, I think uh, you kind of covered a lot. I spoke to her in my first uh, uh, gig as, as media credentialed uh, Tennis with an Accent uh, in Miami in 2017, and uh, I asked her a question about on-court coaching, and you know, I was in a room full of uh, most, I think, British journalists, and and. And she kind of, uh, you know, said, oh, that's a good one. I didn't see that coming. But that time it was a time when she was riding her, you know, success. And uh, she was at an all-time, you know, career peak. And she played a Wimbledon, I think, uh, semifinal that year, a quarterfinal against uh, Simona Halep. And now, uh, like you said, she did put a lot of results together leading into this French Open, winning, I think, 10, 11 matches on clay. And uh, my question to you, I think, was more generic because... Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to stereotype, but a lot of players from Britain in the past haven't really done on clay, and uh, so this was this was a good week, and she she has a singles ranking of 26. I think no matter what happens in this tournament, I think she's headed in the right direction. She's probably going to be, you know, close to top 10. Uh, you know, I haven't really looked at the charts, but uh, yeah, she's definitely surprised me, even though she did win a lot of matches in Rome and she uh, accounted for St- Sloane Stevens. Uh, who was one of our pre-tournament favorites in both Rome and Paris, and Paris was more convincing. So I think, yeah, she. I think her journey uh, by the time this podcast is released, who knows, she could be at the weekend. You know, she's not finished yet. And 
Contrastingly, let me throw this back to you. Madison Keys will be playing a quarterfinals tomorrow. By the time the podcast is released, either she would be heading to grass or she would still be in the tournament to play her semis. Uh, she didn't really have the kind of success on the red clay. She did win the tournament in Charleston, but she did only win, I think, two or three matches between uh, uh, Rome and Madrid. And now here she is. So how surprised are you for that transition compared to Conta, who actually did win a lot of matches coming in? Well, you know, so it's it's a very different identity compared to Kanta Sakib. Uh, I I think the stat I, I could be wrong here, but I think the stat being circulated uh, on on the internet right now is that Keys has made the quarters or better in five of her last seven majors. So she would definitely qualify as an example of someone who raises her game at the majors, a lot like Sloane Stevens, whom she met in last year's Roland Garros semifinal. Uh, now, you know, with Stevens losing, there won't be a possibility of a rematch uh, in the final. But nevertheless, Keys does, you know, find she finds her range at the majors. And, you know, if she is able to beat Ash Barty on Wednesday, and again, if you're listening, you know, that match will probably be over unless, you know, rain completely washed out Wednesday. Um, if she's able to beat Barty, then that means that she will have made back to back semifinals at Roland Garros. Now, if you if you put forth that hypothetical two, three years ago that Madison Keys would defend a semifinal, not at the U.S. Open, you know, not at uh, Wimbledon, uh, not in Australia, but it would do it at Roland Garros in 2019. Uh, many people would have questioned your sanity. So it's 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 interesting that Keys raises her game for the majors. It's also noteworthy that she is another example, uh, kind of like Karolina Pliskova uh, in, in that on clay, the slow, the slower surface seems to calibrate her strokes a little bit better. I know Pliskova lost early, but Pliskova won a Rome title. She made the Madrid semis a year ago. Pliskova's clay results are definitely and consistently better than they are on grass. And that is also the same with keys. So it's just, it's a real surprise given their, their, the way that they play. And, um, you know, I discussed this with people on Twitter including people who follow Pliskova very closely. You know, Pliskova is tall and she has to bend down for the low slices on grass. I totally understand why Pliskova would struggle. But nevertheless, a huge serve, an attacking game, big forehand, you know, that, that, those are ingredients where you can win a lot of cheap points on grass, a surface which, you know, even though it's much slower than it was in the 1980s, uh, grass is still the surface which rewards a huge serve more than the others. So it's very interesting to see Madison Keys uh, in, in a similar vein do better on clay than she has done on grass. And so, um, you know, just beating Barty, if she's able to do it and get to the semis, would make this a terrific tournament for her. Um, you know, if, if she could just merely do that, you know, that would tell me that her level of staying power is, you know, maybe if not in, at the top tier, she would probably need to make the final to, to merit top-tier status. But, but just beating Barty, she would certainly be in, like I'd say, the second tier of WTA players uh, in terms of being able to consistently regather uh, at major tournaments, tournaments of significance. Uh, you know, that would matter a lot in terms of how I see her on the WTA Tour right now. And yeah, I think she's uh, ranked, I believe, 14, and she you know, definitely, I think, I don't have to get the math done, but I think uh, whatever happens in the tournament, she'll be very close to top 10 
And uh, just adding to what you said, I think she has definitely one of the biggest forehands in the game. A lot of time you see these stats on Tennis Channel or other networks. Uh, she's the only name from the WTA that's that I've seen sometimes, you know, who hits the hardest forehand. And with Del Potro team, I've seen her name a few times. So she definitely is someone, you know, who, you know, who's been in these talks when Lindsay Davenport was working with her, that she has the game. And of course, you know, winning majors is more than a game. It's about how you pace yourself, how you control, you know, your emotions, how you handle pressure and and all those good things. But she definitely, I think the way the weather is going to be in the next few days, I think she has the power to hit a damp, slow clay court where the ball is not going to bounce that much. And uh, like you said, you know, repeating a French Open semifinal uh, back-to-back years is, uh, you know, is not something that uh, most people would have talked about. But uh, I also feel, I think, sometimes young Americans who haven't done well, they tend to sometimes play more fearless tennis outside of the States. And even though clay is... On the men's side, it has been Achilles' heel. And the women, I think Sloane Stevens making the final last year. And again, Maddie Key's about to, you know, uh, on the verge of making a second semi. I think sometimes that takes the pressure off when you are playing in Europe. That's, uh, again, all four majors are equal. Uh, but I definitely think for Americans, uh, and especially uh, with an aggressive game like Key's, there's a heavier set of expectations the US Open and uh, the hardcore slams. That's what I think. Absolutely. I think that's re- quite on point. You know, I think I think that's I think that really gets to the heart of it with Madison Keys. Uh, so, how about the other women in the tournament? How how do you stack them up? I know you know we don't want to actually do projection, but you know since Stats Insider blessed us, uh, have you created some of your own simulators? And you know who who you think is going to be there? If you want to just turn the conversation uh, for the weekend, uh, you you have the weather, of course, as a big factor because, like Mert said, this is a tournament where. Uh, not only conditions change, you know, uh, but it impacts how the clay plays. You know, it can be hu- humid, it can be, you know, very sunny, and the ball's, like, taking off. That's, that's going to be a huge thing in the Federer-Nadal matchup. And, and similarly, I think it impacts every matchup, you know, that's remaining here. So, considering that, uh, do you want to drive the conversation uh, with all the remaining players, and who do you actually see being there on, uh, you know, Saturday? Yeah, well, you know, so because there are so many variables and because, you know, the outcomes of, of the quarterfinals might already be decided uh, by the time people listen to this podcast. And of course, you and I don't re- don't know yet because we're recording Tuesday night. I don't want to get too deep into the forest in terms of predictions, but I would just say that, you know, Simone, it's Simona Halep's tournament to lose. She's the only major champion left in the draw as we record this Tuesday night. So it, it, it's definitely her tournament to lose. Uh, uh, so. There are a few things worth knowing about two other players that we haven't yet spoken about. One is Ash Barty. Um, she continues to produce, you know, solid results on what is her weakest surface, clay. You know, she's going to be a top-tier contender at Wimbledon without any question, and she should be also firmly in the mix uh, at the U.S. Open later this year. You know, she's definitely raised her floor. You know, she she had been a round of 32 round of 16 player. Now she's made two straight major quarterfinals. And if she does beat Madison Keys uh, in that match, and you might know the result already, um, then that would be her first major semifinal and doing it on clay. So it would be a plot twist akin to Joe Conta, uh, you know, being one win away from making her first major final on clay and not on any other surface. So Barty just continues to deliver the goods. If Keys beats her, you know, it would be a modest disappointment, but nothing too shattering because because it's clay and not the, not the surface where Barty expects 
uh, to dominate, but she continues to elevate her game. And I think it's a matter of, uh, of when, not if, she's going to break through and become a major champion. I mean, her, her game is so well-rounded. She, and whenever people in the press rooms talk to her, she continues to go back to clarity of thought, knowing when to hit the various shots. And it brings to mind Roger Federer, you know, having all those different brush strokes that he could use uh, from his uh, art, artist's bag uh, to paint on the canvas of the court. And he didn't know how to align his shots, arrange them and play patterns. But once he figured that out, you know, it all fell into place. And on a smaller scale, that's certainly what's also happening with Ash Barty. And now another player that has to be mentioned is Marketa Vondrushova, uh, who played a very fascinating match against Petra Martic in the quarterfinals on Tuesday. Vondrushova was down 5-3, Martic serving for the first set, broke back. Then she was down 5-6, love 40, and she played five absolutely immaculate points to hold for 6-6 and then storm through the breaker. She won 12 of the last 13 points in that first set. Uh, she was glacially calm uh, in, in a situation which, you know, would have turned my knees to mush. Uh, she responded to that, those three set points at love 40 at 5-6 in the first and just played brilliant tennis. Martich, who made mistakes at other points late in that first set and other points in the match, uh, Martic didn't do anything wrong on those five points, the three set points, and then at deuce, and then uh, add in. Uh, Vondrushova was just remarkable in handling situations. And then late in that match, in the in the second set, uh, Vondrushova double faulted badly on her on match point on her serve. It was the first she had three match points uh, that she missed before converting the fourth. Uh, the first match point she had on her serve uh, at 5-3 in the second set, uh, she hit both serves, the first serve and the second serve, into the bottom third of the net. I mean, that was the one time when we really saw the nerves of the moment get to her, and she got broken when serving for the match at 5-3. But then after Martic leveled for 5-5, Vandrushova immediately regrouped and played some very intelligent tennis her shot selection was better than martich uh you know for most of the match certainly after the end of the first set when vandrushova turned the tide uh this is a 19 year old this is a player who uh, has a feel for constructing points on clay uh, that you know veterans several years older don't yet have uh, the knack for so vandrushova's head you know her inner game uh, is has been spectacular at this tournament, especially in the quarterfinals. And so that matchup with Kanta in uh, Thursday's likely to be first semifinal, uh, that's a fascinating contrast of styles because you have Kanta's very flat linear hitting, and then you have Vandrushova's lefty top spin, uh, you know, which will she will try to make Kanta hit a lot of shoulder height uh, backhands and ground strokes, and Kanta as she did against Sloan Stevens will want to get on top of points with her serve and her blazing ground strokes, you know, just hitting targets in the corners of the court, going near the lines uh, and uh, reducing any margin that uh, Vandrushova uh, would hope to have. So it's a delicious contrast. You know, when you, you, you so often get WTA matches with the same basic baseline styles, Vandrushova Kanta will be uh, anything unlike 
that kind of template. It's going to be a, a one style here and a very different style on the other side of the net. That's what makes me excited for that particular uh, French Open semifinal coming up on Thursday. Uh, you have me excited. I mean, the the presentation you just did here, uh, because I didn't watch uh, most of this match today, but yeah, uh, you're right. And she's only 19, and this is, this is a huge opportunity. But I would like to just add something. Uh, uh, I know, hypothetical, it's still a couple of matches away and may, may not happen, but a Bardi Quanta final would be huge because the Cricket World Cup is going on right now, and Australia-England is a huge rivalry. So I have a lot of friends, you know, uh, and I'm sure... Uh, this this is something uh, these girls might be even asked. Uh, if it was Wimbledon, they would definitely be asked because the Cricket World Cup would still be going on. But yeah, that, that'll, that'll be a huge final for, for different reasons. But uh, I would also like uh, this opportunity to do an honourable and well-deserving mention of Petra Martic, who you briefly spoke about. Uh, she was, I think, riding some of her best form coming in. She's a perennial, I think, consistent WTA player who has been, you know, somewhat like, I don't know if we do a comparison, but like a Co Philip Kohlschreiber, a very consistent you know, game on always and reaching third and fourth rounds of majors. And she broke through. Uh, I expected her to win this match, to be honest. Uh, not, uh, you know, because she won Istanbul and I think made a semifinal in, in Rome. Uh, so what, what are your thoughts on her career graph? And, you know, this was a very well-deserved quarterfinal showing at a major for Martic. I mean, you know, when you break through and you make your first major quarterfinal, it has to be viewed as a good tournament, obviously. Martich will rue the 5-3 service game she played late in the first set. You know, as mentioned earlier, at 5-6, love 40, when she had three set points, hey, the opponent just played tr tremendously. But at 5-3 in the first set, Martich could have done better. So there's going to be some regrets when a 7-6, 7-5 match gets away from you. That's obviously a match in which a handful of points, if played a little bit better, you know, could have changed the direction of the match. But nevertheless, that's a first major quarterfinal we, we would recall from January when Roberto Bautista Agut made his first major quarterfinal after very similarly hitting his head on that fourth round ceiling and not being able to break through for many years. So Martich at age 28, finally tasting that major quarterfinal, you know, she still has to realize what a wonderful tournament she had. Uh, you know, she was down to love 40-30 against Kaya Kanepi's serve in the fourth round. So Kanepi on serve, and of course she has a big serve, uh, had a point for three love and Martich was able to fight back and win that match. So uh, it's nothing but positives for Martich. And it has to be said as well, uh, not in terms of, you know, tennis legacy, but just in terms of appreciating the humanity of sport. Uh, Martich just suffered this crushing loss in a major quarterfinal. She so dearly wanted to make a first major semifinal. She was on a great run. Vandrusheva ended it. Uh, and, you know, and we don't know if Martich at 28 is going to get another chance as good as this one. Maybe she will, but you really don't know, especially later in your career. You know, she could have just, you know, allowed the pain of the moment to overwhelm her. But instead, at the net, when Vandrusheva came up to her at net, Martich was beaming. She had a huge smile on her face because she was happy for this 19-year-old who much like Yelena Ostapenko two years ago, you know, has, has had this wonderful breakthrough uh, just before turning 20 years old. Uh, so the fact that Martich in that moment at net thought of her opponent more than of herself, uh, that's a wonderful, beautiful moment and a reminder of, you know, what we're here for, a reminder that, you know, while we should aspire and hunger for the best results, uh, that you know, when 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 an opponent does well, you know, we 
should try to feel and not just feel, but express happiness for what that other person does. Because and, and, and in many ways, Sakib, I relate this to our identity as podcasters. You know, we obviously want our podcast to do well, but we also want the body serve to do well. We also want Match Point Canada with Mike McIntyre and Ben Lewis to do well because they're in the same, you know, they, they are in or have been in the positions similar to us. You know, we're, we're podcasters. We're in this big boat. Other people's success is our success. Our success is other people's success. I think when, when one person succeeds, it's a, it's an inspiration to others. It's a pathway and a, and a map for other people in a similar position. So we should all uh, take joy in the success of others. And that really is the biggest thing that Petra Martic taught me at Roland Garros 2019, a wonderful moment that I am going to remember. I mean, this is uh, as good a note to wrap this up, but I'm still tempted to get a couple minutes out of you. And uh, even though Nick Nemiroff and I discussed, uh, you know, some of the big matchups in the men's draw, but now a day later, we still have an opportunity and uh, we have to talk a couple of minutes about Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. This is their sixth French Open meeting. I think you and I have talked at length uh, in our in our DMs, and you said the 2007 match was you know the match where you thought Federer has the best chance. Uh, this is more like a throwback on how these men have squared off. 2005 was the first time, even though Federer I think had lost to uh, Nadal in Miami uh, before. So how how do, how do you look back at those matches? And uh, what can Federer do any differently this time, in your opinion? Well, you know, I could be snarky and simply say that if he's up 5-2 in the first set, he needs to make the drop shot on set point um, <laughs> that he didn't make in the in the 2011 final. But, you know, being serious, you know, Federer has to mix it up. He can't be bolted to the baseline. He can't give Nadal the same look. And he needs to get to the net as much as possible, obviously in reasonably winning or, or, you know, confident positions coming off good approaches. You know, he can't just come to the net for the sake of coming to the net. He has to come in behind something good, but he definitely just can't settle for those baseline exchanges, which is what generally happened on clay uh, in 2006, 2007, 8, 9. Uh, so, you know, Federer has to change the equation, uh, not allow Rafa to settle into a comfortable groove. You know, that's that's what he has to do, and he has to just be a demon in terms of not getting aces, but he needs to hit the corners of the box on his serve. You know, he, that's what pulled him out of trouble against Bafrinka, especially the wide serve from Ad. Wasn't he wasn't crushing the serve, but he was hitting the wide corner of the box, and that he's just going to have to do that a lot against Rafa. You know, I don't give him a, a great chance, but um, you know, the in terms of in terms of the larger story of this match, and we'll obviously have something to say about it next week when we're looking back on everything that's happened at Roland Garros, but just the, the big picture that people need to be cognizant of is that, once again, Federer is likely to lose to Nadal on clay, and it, it, it might feel like a loss. It might feel like you know a diminishment of Federer to accept another beatdown from Nadal on clay, and, many, and obviously that's gonna, that might be the headline in many corners, but the, 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 the subtle point which has existed since the beginning of this rivalry on clay is that Federer has managed to get to these moments on clay. He's managed to get to these semifinals and finals on clay. So by, by being, you know, back in 2006, the number two clay player in the world, and now by being the number four 
clay player in the world. I'm not talking about overall ATP rankings. We know Federer's third, but in terms of, you know, he's now the fourth clay player. He has affirmed that clearly behind Rafa, Djokovic, and Dominic Team. So by being able to be so good on his quote-unquote weakest surface, he's put himself in these positions to lose to Nadal. But, you know, it's a good thing for Federer that he has lost all these clay matches against Nadal because if he hadn't gotten to these meetings, sure, the head-to-head would look a lot better than 23-15. And, you know, if he loses on Friday, 24-15. But... You know, you would rather have lost those head-to-heads on clay and reached all those major finals and semifinals at Roland Garros and elsewhere than never have gotten there in the first place. And so that is one of the hidden uh, positive attributes of Federer's career relative to Rafa and also relative to this match. You know, Federer could have lost in the third round, uh, which I very erroneously predicted, and he wouldn't have lost to Rafa at this tournament. But, of course, you want to be there just to have the chance. Even if it means that you're going to lose, you still would rather be in that semifinal. You still would rather be in that final. And that has been a constant of Federer's career and also of the Federer-Nadal rivalry over these past 14 years. No, absolutely. And I would also like to add a concluding thought here because Mert Artunga, who's you know part of our Tennis with an Accent uh, contributing staff and good friend, he's been saying that Federer came here with a business and you know you and I, uh, believe and respected that notion, but you and I also picked him to lose to Matteo Berrettini, and Federer has made us look silly. And you know, and like you said, sometimes you make those picks and stick to it. But I would definitely—that's uh, my observation, which I'm trying to point out here—is Federer today to me. Uh, Stan Wawrinka is a quality, quality clicker player, and he was playing one of his best tennis in a long time. So if you're a Federer fan, uh, I think today's match, win or lose, you know, can give you confirmation that you know if. Any, barring any health issues, he should be, you know, a force at Wimbledon. Not that anyone was expecting otherwise, but Federer did say, like, last year he played a lot of grass and a lot of times he f- believed you can get into the habit of blocking balls and you don't get into the rally rhythm because at Wimbledon you still need rallies. So I think this this whole uh, clay court season, uh, going back to Madrid and then Rome and Roland Garros, I think it did prepare him. And he still has a an outside shot. I mean, I firmly believe Rafa is a favorite, but I, I'm picking Federer to at least win a set and making it very competitive. So I think uh, we can sign off, unless, Matt, you have another thing to say, or uh, and then we can definitely record another show uh, for post-Roland Garros. Well, just... Uh... You know, I I think that's pretty good. I just want to thank, again, uh, Stats Insider for sponsoring last week's podcast. And I do want to encourage our listeners, if they haven't done so yet, to go to statsinsider.com.au. So Stats Insider, not sponsoring this episode, but still took a real chance on us and expressed a lot of confidence in us. And Sakib and I both want to recognize Stats Insider and the team there, Nick Splitter, uh, Greg Buton, the chief data analyst. Uh, and also writer James Rosewarn uh, for all of their support. And uh, I want to, people to know that, you know, on Twitter, we've heavily promoted Stats Insider over the past seven days. So if you are a tennis website or a tennis outlet uh, retailer of some sort, uh, you might have noticed that we heavily promoted Stats Insider. So you would get that same treatment, uh, you know, from us in terms of social media promotion if you sponsor our podcast. So I want to thank Stats Insider and want to invite 
other tennis-oriented businesses or any other businesses looking to expand their reach in the marketplace to consider sponsoring the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Okay, on that note, this is Saqib and Matt signing off, and we'll be back with another episode and probably a much-awaited episode, or at least from our end, uh, we'll be discussing what happened in Roland Garros and the takeaways and the parting thoughts. Till then, uh, thanks for listening, and share this episode with all your friends and our other episodes, and we need your support, like Matt said. Uh, bye for now.